Heartly welcome to this uh, podcast episode, special edition of The Four Speeches. So we've done uh, a few episodes based on our book, uh, The Four Speeches, uh, and this is a special episode where we feature the concession speech, um, traditional speech in the American electoral drama, uh, that's the speech that Trump hasn't given so far or delivered. Um, I'm Bård Nordheim, and I'm a professor at NLA University College. Uh, I'm joined by my colleague, Joar Haga. And our special guest star of today is uh, Andrew Root, professor at St. Paul Luther Seminary. Uh, welcome, Andy. Thanks so um, uh, the concession speech as a tradition goes back to uh, very far back in your electoral tradition, even in 1796. Um, when, which was the first time where the uh, election was contested between parties. Federalist John Adams lost to Democratic Republican Thomas Jefferson and had to sort of concede. But sort of the first concession speech or concession telegram was given a uh, hundred years later by Democrat William Jennings Bryan, and he lost to the Republican William McKinley. I think he was shot uh, three years later or something like that. And he was the first to send a congratulatory telegram reading, I hasten to extend my congratulations. We have submitted the issue to the American people and the will is law. So what sort of speech is the concession speech? We'll work with that now uh, because, well, uh, today is the, we have to say that this is December 15. We don't know about the future, but so far, um, President Donald Trump hasn't conceded. He hasn't, um, it, it seems like he's sort of singing his own version of the song. So, uh, not sorry seems to be the hardest word, but congratulations seems to be the hardest word. So, Andy, do you remember any concession, historical concession speeches in particular from your, from growing up as an American? What's the most memorable that you remember? Well, you know, as a, as a good American, my brain has been fried by television and fast food. So I can't remember a ton of them, but the one that really sticks out that I think, um, any American my age, um, which, you know, if you're watching the recording of this, you would assume that I'm, you know, 19, but actually in my 40s, um, <laughs> is that is the Al Gore concession speech, because things were still really up in the air, you know, and um, just have memories of people down in, in, in Florida looking at hanging chads and um, all sorts of issues there and going to the Supreme Court and and that Gore, you know, essentially the fight was still there. There was still, um, as we say in America, meat on the bone to fight over. And he uh, he conceded. And he was going to lose in the in the highest court in the land. And so he he gave this very um, this concession speech that those of us who had voted for Gore were very disappointed with, because um, yeah. at the time we could think of no one worse than George W. Bush. Um, <laughs> Fast forward 20, 20 years, 16 years, and it's a very different, uh, different nightmare that, that, that comes to our shores. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was a very much one of putting the office and putting the country before self-ambitions. And that's uh, been quite a different change here. Um, yeah. years because Gord used a very typical phrase in many concession speeches. Uh, I mean, if you watch the YouTube clip or on television, um, transmission of the speech. You can see that he paused for seven seconds, so it didn't come easy to him, I think. But he started with this uh, appeal to heal divisions and uh, the need to put patriotism above party politics and guard 
and the uh, and the law, not not man, is what, what must govern the country. And then he said, while I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. I accept the finality of this outcome. Tonight, for the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of a democracy, I offer my concession. And then it, he said, it's time to move beyond partisan lines. And that 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 theme is sort of a, an old theme. Uh, it's, um, it goes uh, far back to uh, the one who had to concede to Abraham Lincoln, who was the first to appeal to this beyond partisan line. And we can think about the context there, why that was important. Um, and you are, what is an election? Uh, wh why do we have elections? I mean, in old days, the kings and uh, the counts, they were fighting, they were settling things with war. So the election plays is, is a different sort of game, isn't it? Yes, but it has, um, it is um, the, um, the absolute power. We invest that in the, in the moment when, when, um, when a singular, an individual goes to the ballot box. So it's, um, it's a moment of, of power um, decision that is um, a secret because it is assumed that if no one knows uh, what you're voting, it will be fair. But, but what, um, what Trump has sort of displayed is, is the uncertainty of whether the, 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 um, the whole business around or, or the structure around this uh, ballot box, whether that is fair or not, or the counting of it. And so, and it's, it's an, if we look uh, um, a bit um, away from the, the concrete thing, it's a very interesting theoretical um, question, whether what is a fair election? It's, um, and, 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 um, and I think um, the, the security that the Western societies um, have constructed around the elections are uh, in a large part due to the media and, and the way that the media interact uh, with the elections. Uh, and we can, if we compare it to, to uh, African regimes where, where the uncertainties are much uh, larger, you can see that the medias, the, the, the newspapers and, and television, radio and so forth, they don't function as they do in the Western societies. So I think it's, um, it's a very interesting um, thing to ask whether a, a, an election is a fair one or if it's, if it's, um, it's a correct uh, thing. It's a debatable. So I think in principle, Trump has a, an interesting point. And do you think he's a sort of, uh, he's the ultimate postmodern who's, who questions, uh, is doubtful and to institutions and all of that? Uh, I mean, that's probably giving him too much credit, but is it sort of a, uh, this questioning mind in some sense? No, I think he's, his, his intention is, is, is a different one, but, yeah. but it is, it raises the, the, you know, the problem of having a democracy is that it's, um, basis is not as clear-cut and, and well-defined as we like to think. 
And um, if we, in the American tradition, uh, they, many voices, many eloquent voices have, have been raised towards the, for example, the, the uh, defense of democracy by Rousseau, the, the famous French uh, Enlightenment philosopher. He had the idea that the, the will of the people, uh, the general will, volunt uh, volonté générale, that it just appeared somehow. It, it, it wasn't, but, but we, as we know, it has, um, um, we have an understanding that we want to exchange one person with another, but what are the conditions for doing that? And how do we know that the will of the people is, what are the rules of this game? So you're saying that uh, Trump is uh, tapping into that uncertainty in some sense, yes. that is embedded in all uh, in all democracies or in all electoral uh, electoral processes. Yeah. Yes, because if you uh, we can um, the the problem the problem now is that it, it is a it's it's problematic to say these things, of course, but but think of it. As, as the, the communists uh, did, they didn't recognize uh, the rule of law because the law was corrupt. I mean, the, the, the courts, they were rigged in order to protect private property. And the communists didn't believe that that, that, that was the right thing. So I think the, and, and it's, a, it's a fair thing to think through how precious our inst institutions are and how fragile they are. I think that's a, a lesson to, to take. The, the American system is much more robust than, for, for example, uh, the Europe, European systems. I, I, don't, I don't know if we could go through what the American people have, uh, has gone through now, because the, the American system, and that's uh, perhaps much more uh, evident to Andy, is that the, the point of, of checks and balances is it is rigged as um as a contested as a contested space <laughs> that's the the rig of the whole thing yeah. yeah yeah it is it's really interesting as an american and you know growing up through the 80s and 90s and then into this period is uh there what there is this deep sense that i think has been fractured a little bit that that you are that the american project does give you these very strong robust institutions um, and that they, I think, I, I really do think that part of 2016 in the election, I mean, I think there's a lot of different dynamics coming together, but they're just, there is a deep kind of nihilism that exists within the American context that's just bubbled up and, and Trump's been able to hit it. But there's a certain kind of kind of upward mobile nihilism too. And I think that particularly showed itself in 2016 that didn't show itself in 2020, which is why he won. And I think part of it was, listen, I hate Hillary. Um, I hate these elites. Um, and there was a, a kind of tacit sense that the institutions are strong enough anyhow. So let's let this crazy you know, guy that I don't really even like that much, but I really hate Hillary. Let's let him go. And America will be fine because the institutions are so strong. Mm. And yet for those of us who were really disturbed over these four years, it was just shocking to us the things he could do, essentially the laws he could break. And it, it seemed like there were, the institutions were not strong enough to remove him or to sanction him in any way. 
And even last night with the electoral college move, you would hear, you would hear on the news, there are a few pundits that were saying, you know, with a kind of sigh, a deep sigh of, uh, a deep sigh of uh, relief that the institutions held, like at least the electoral college held, because that was a fear, like, you know, people being told they're going to be shot if they vote how, yeah. if they put their vote, how the, how the populace voted um, in that they held. But I think coming out of this, this very robust American institutional structure that was really built, you know, before World War II, but really was very robust after World War II. And a lot of us inherited through different economic turns towards kind of neoliberalism and hyper-consumerism that washed ashore in the 80s. Like it all held. But these last four years have been a little bit existential on how strong are these institutions. And the institutions my, my children will now inherit have been kind of like a sea, like pillars in a sea or something that they've been washed away and they are still holding and they've been able to hold under this weight, but will they remain um, as strong? I don't know. I mean, I, I joked coming on this that I'll talk about the American, you know, the decay of America, but that's part of the fear is that these institutions that we all probably um, uh, very naively put a lot of trust in, like, well, they're, they're there, everything will be okay. You know, America is strong. Uh, the institutions will hold they don't feel as invincible anymore. Um, that is, that is very, I think that's a very good analysis. I think it's, a, it's, it's with the, with the, uh, what the oil, oil economy uh, has done to Norway. And, and yeah. we are so rich now that we can sort of lean back and we can just, you know, it, 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 it comes with strength, a certain, um, Hubris. inevitable weakness i think yeah. that that's what you describe and and this nihilism it's it's a very good and, and the 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 question is how you, you you don't know what kind of stress um or or um or forces that will actually sort of shake the whole thing i think that's that's a very good analysis uh, before we move to um discussing in further length the reality that has enabled uh, sort of Trump's rhetoric and uh, Trumpism, uh, I want to pause a bit more with the, the concession speech itself as a speech act. Uh, we touched upon earlier that it's a performative speech by if you say those words, you shape a sort of reality. It's, it's as if you Heard here for a Lutheran, it's like hearing an echo of Psalm 33, uh, verse 9. For he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. It's sort of the idea that the word that creates a new reality. And if we look at some of the historical concession speeches, they are very different. Uh, my Perhaps my two of my favorites would be Bob Dole when he lost in 1996. I don't know if you remember that one. He he just started by saying, I don't th think he had even prepared a, a very good concession speech. He said, I was just thinking on the way down the elevator that tomorrow will be the first time in my life I don't have anything to do. That's how I, so, so, and that was sort of congratulations, said I'm out of a job. And um, we'll, uh, we'll skip Walter Mondale, the sort of Norwegian and Minnesotan in the run. He, his wasn't very memorable, but he said to Reagan, he's our president, but that might, but perhaps my all-time favorite is Gerald Ford in 1976. And it was rather bizarre in the meaning, in the sense that he didn't give it himself. The excuse was that he had a sore throat uh, from uh, campaigning. And it was his wife, Betty, who conceded on his behalf. Um, 
and 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 she said and with 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 the husband on her side you can see clips of that it's really funny the president urges all americans to join him in giving your united support to president-elect carter as he prepares blah 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 to assume this kind of responsibility so there's this i mean no candidate is obliged to give a concession speech it's not in in the law but it's this courtesy to keep up the to, to keep the strength of the institutions basically and um, so in that sense when Mitch McConnell today then the December 15th as the first major Republican leader in Senate um, so, sort of as the Senate majority leader said the electoral college has spoken it's uh, sort of a prophetic statement so saith or thus saith the electoral college and he then congratulated president-elect Joe Biden. Essentially, a concession speech is a farewell speech, but you are, what more is there to say of this performative act? What, why, why do you think a speech like this plays such an important role in a moment like that? I mean, in our tradition, we don't have, what's memorable in Norwegian electoral tradition is rather the sort of high tone victory speech of the, uh, minority group winner or something like that. If there's a left party or right party who's uh, gained a part victory, it's their bizarre woohoo sort of speech rather than this concession speech. So, what sort of speech act is it? Uh, I think it. I think it taps into uh, to another uncertainty, and that is the classical uh, um, moment when the king died. I mean, that's the the whole rig of the absolute monarchy is to secure that the line of succession is uh, upheld. And the, 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 the problem is, of course, the, the threat of a civil war. Um, and, and perhaps um, most, most people know that even if, if things are not um, demanded by law, it can be even even um, more important. Uh, and um, I think I, I think it, just to tap into what Andy said about uh, this nihilism, a problem uh, that the American voters face today is a, a sitting president that has. Take, takes no interest in character. He's he's not interested in displaying any virtues. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a, that the 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 um, the book of of Alistair McIntyre after virtue. That's actually now. Mm. <laughs> and and I I I, 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 I think it's a, it's a it's a completely new situation because as a as a citizen you want to display virtues. That's that's the whole point from. Immanuel Kant to Habermas. It's it is a completely new situation. I think it's it, it's uh, yeah. It, it's a sort of nihilism. It's, it's what you. I've started reading the Obama biography, and it's all about stating virtues and ethos. The whole first part is about situating your ethos. Uh, I think, at least. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, this has been a big it was a big issue here after after the election, because there is a way that that speech that that concession speech does 
um, almost something magical where it, it, it sets something in, in process. And until that's done, it, it couldn't happen. So there were like some concrete things like releasing office space to the president elect, releasing yeah. funds for him to start the new government to obviously, I mean, everyone in the news heard this, just be, being able to get the briefings, the security briefings of the country that all of those were dependent on this tradition, not a law like, like board said, but a tradition of the candidate um, who loses having enough virtue in putting country above self enough to concede so that the country can kind of move forward and prepare. And he, uh, you know, this is just not something that, that Trump is, is about. Um, you know, he is, he's, he is in many ways the, the anti-virtue, but, but for, his, for his followers though, which is really kind of perplexing for us and, you know, board holding up the Obama um, book, I mean, there's in a certain way, the divide that goes right through America is a real divide between Trump and Obama and even how they, how they live their lives, what they think is a good life. And then the practices they take on, I mean, the ways they talk, those things are all really embodied. And I think um, a huge division that exists within the country. I mean, uh, Board, you said this was a, a farewell speech. Yeah. Um, you know, to put that in the context of Trump, that def- you're, you're, you're saying farewell, you're saying, I hope you fare well, as I yeah, leave. Exactly. Trump do does not believe that. He, he does not hope the country fares well without him. He actually, I think, wants the country to do much worse. I mean, he's already planning an election in, you know, 2024, supposedly. And so he would like nothing better for the Biden administration to flounder, um, which is very different than like what the first Bush did with Clinton, where he was very happy to hope he, you know, writes this letter as, you know, now myth that I'm your biggest fan now after running this very contentious election. Trump does not believe that. I mean, Trump does not hope that Biden or the country fares well without him. So even if we ever get a concession speech, it'll be very interesting for you both to analyze on this podcast if it's a farewell speech or if it is a speech of grievance and um, wait till I wait till I come next time and then, and then somebody's going to pay a revenge speech. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, uh, a farewell speech is sort of the the expectancy from uh, the audience is that in, in a farewell speech, you're supposed to be humble. You say cheers, you say thank you, and you um, you sort of name the virtues that have been carrying you and the organization that you've been leading. So there's really no room for being, it's like a sore loser after a, uh, a sports competition. If you say, well, do you want to congratulate the winner? No, the, the referees were not. It's like Pep Guardiola, walking past Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, which I didn't do, of course, and not thanking or just running straight into the dressing room or whatever. So, so it's that sort of, you break with the whole idea of the game in some sense, or the, what people expect. So people expect you to be, to appear humble and thankful and all of that. So, as a, as a yeah. comedian says here that, uh, you know, they said, well, when Trump won the election, he was a very poor winner. So usually poor winners don't make for good losers. So, uh, you know, this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. You remember when he won, he said that there was fraud and he was cheated out of it. And there were millions of people who voted who shouldn't have voted. So usually people who are poor winners are not usually uh, good losers. And, you know, we're seeing that in, in uh, really bold, bold ways here. But I think um, the, to, in, in order to have a farewell speech, I, I think... Um, 
the one who is holding it must acknowledge that the game is over in a, yeah. in a certain sense. Um, and with the, with the old kings, um, they didn't have to, to make their uh, concession speeches because, I mean, they were mostly stone dead. Exactly. Or forced into exile or something like that. So it's... The, the, the whole game that we are trying to play in democracies um, is a game that has uh, that has um, a certain um, cultural death. It's it's um it's um it's um a debatable death, and therefore also or or a, or a debatable uh, ending of the of the leader. And therefore, in 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 some <clears throat> some countries that have have been democracies, could turn into into uh, stable dic- dictatorships, and um, and and there, there there could also be good reasons for doing that. I I, I think it, I think the the luxury that we have in this is is uh, is perhaps more appreciated now than. Than before, I, I'm not sure, but but perhaps. Uh, before we uh, give the word to you, Andy, to in, address in more depth the sort of reality that uh, Trump is addressing and also creating with his rhetoric, uh, I just want to look at the speeches that Trump has given post election. I mean, he get, gave one speech on election night. M- many would remember that. When he started saying we 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 won it by a lot was sort of his uh, chorus, and then um, there was this interesting speech on November fifth in the White House press room where he um, seemed like his strategy was naming a reality where he named that this was the year of the Republican woman. More Republican women were elected to Congress than ever before. He was telling a story that. Everybody now is re- uh, recognizes that media polling was election interference and, and so on and so, so on. And he announces that there will be lots of litigations. Um, and then finally, perhaps the most interesting speech on December 2nd, he, he starts that by saying, this may be the most important, important speech I'll ever give. Uh, and he, in the beginning of that speech, he, he describes that the, the United States states is now under coordinated assault and siege. So it's sort of a war metaphor, definitely, that, that he uses to describe the, the fraud and the sort of stop the steal thing. And he also said, interestingly, I don't mind if I lose an election, he says, but I want to lose an election fair and square. And I'm prepared to accept any accurate election results, uh, but sort of the highest office in the world requires that we do this fair and square. So it's a way of uh, arguing for his uh, lawsuits and the Rudy Giuliani uh, sort of uh, thing. And in the end, very interestingly, he ends in this following way. If we don't root out the fraud, the tremendous and horrible fraud that's taken place in our 2020 election, we don't have a country anymore. So what sort of country is it that Trump's creating with his word and addressing to? What's yeah. your country, Andy? Where do you live? To put it that well, way. I'm, yeah, I mean, it's it, 
I think it, it's an interesting thing to balance because I think looking from the outside, I mean, uh, uh, standing where you all are, I mean, yeah. it, it does seem like a madman took over America, you know, like that, yeah. that Trump has made America in his own image. But I think that that obviously is quite naive and that America was already ready to receive him, you know, that there, there are larger cultural realities that allowed uh, Donald Trump to be coherent. And, um, you know, like what we can never get past is that over 70 million people voted for him, you know, and um, this, he was not, he had, he, he, more people than ever before voted for Donald Trump. We're just, you know, lucky that the states went a certain way and more people than Donald, you know, more people voted for Joe Biden than, than Donald Trump. But, you know, the, the, the turnout was, was, was quite amazing. So, there's something deep within the culture war that's existed for generations within this country that he's really playing to in that he feels, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, you, you, you both mentioned was this kind of sense of a concession speech. You have to affirm that the game's over, that the clock has run out of the game and Donald Trump is his way of winning. I mean, he hasn't really been that much of a winner when it comes to business and things like that, but is to never let the clock run out. And that's how he uses litigation. You just keep suing and keep suing and keep suing. And then the clock never goes to zero and therefore you never lose. And usually if you can just throw more money and go more in debt, uh, the person you're suing will give up uh, before you. And he's trying that here. Um, but to a lot of people that feels really heroic. Um, and you know, one of the things that, that makes me kind of think about what's going on here is uh, there, there's this German social theorist that maybe your listeners know, um, uh, Andres Retzvix. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's written this really nice book called A Society of Singularities. Oh. And he talks about the shrinking of the middle class. And I probably just murdered his name in my American way of speaking of it. But he talks about the shrinking of this middle class. And one of the things that he argues that I, I, I really see in the American context is how the middle class has become culturalized, where it becomes almost an aesthetic class. And it, yet it shrinks because of that. And what I think a lot of the people who voted for Trump were people who have recently been kind of kicked out of the middle class, at least culturally, like their kids can't play on that team or their sister-in-law tells them that the way they talk is ignorant or they didn't go to this kind of university. So they kind of get pushed out and this kind of cultural middle class that's become smaller has really refused any of these kind of kitschy Americana kind of things. The American flag, Budweiser, pickup trucks. Um, and Trump comes along and Trump embraces all of that stuff. And he's not one of the elite middle class, essentially. I and mean, he's an ultra rich person who is kind of flamboyantly ultra rich, which plays back into these kind of leftovers of middle class. And he becomes their hero. And he becomes their hero because being kicked out of the middle class has been an economic issue which is hurt deeply but it's also like i said in this cultural issue where you are not a, a you're not you're not, you, you don't talk the right way you can't use language like that you can't assume things like that and it's just been this kind of intellectual bullying almost aesthetic bullying that has happened across the culture and trump basically just comes along and uh becomes you know you don't it, when you're on the playground and you're being bullied you don't care the virtue of the person who is going to have your back and bully your bully that that doesn't that makes no difference to you and i think for a lot of people that's been that's been it like you have seen economic disadvantage the money continues to be unequally shared but it's also the cultural esteem and uh trump just basically gives all those people a middle finger and it's delicious to you you know the the your sister-in-law who looked down on you for years um 
Trump just basically gives her the middle finger and tells her to sit down. And it just feels so good. It feels so good to have someone pick on someone else. And I mean, that's a little bit um, simplistic, but it's really a deeply cultural reality. And I think people on the left keep on thinking, well, this is economics or this is morality. And it's not, it's really culturalized. And he becomes their kind of cultural hero um, of a kind of make America great again. And this is why for a lot of people, it's a, it's a dog whistle of racial issues and things like that. It's really this kind of sense of this certain kind of cultural form that's more against a certain cultural form than even for one, if, if that makes sense. Could I, could I comment on that? Yeah, please. Um, I think what you, you are saying also fits into the, um, the myth that uh, create uh, that created uh, America, or, or that America, the idea of America is based on, namely the hope not only for for a decent life in um, as um, uh, running away from from regimes in Europe, but at at the same time endless possibilities. And I think that mm. when at a certain point these possibilities um, either stop or they, they have an end. You cannot uh, uh, any longer go west. It's, 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 you have actually reached the, the um, limit. Yeah. The limit. Yeah. And I, I think it's very hard for a, for a society to, to, to adjust the, the founding myth of a, of a society. So I think it's, in a sense, uh, what you're saying also um, coincide with with uh, a certain utopian yes. uh, understanding of, of of the country itself. But it's almost even more haunting, I think, because that that utopian myth is still there. The American dream is still there. You can have it all. You can be anything, which kind of gives Donald Trump a little bit of an of, of an allure of being appealing. He he mm. did it. But the other issue that's going on here is you could have it, but someone's keeping you from it. There's a blockage and someone is to blame. There's some people who are not allowing you to do it. You would, you would be excelling, you would be rich or you would be happy even if, if these other people um, weren't doing it. Well, who's doing it? Here comes all the conspiracy theories of the people who are doing it. Yeah. And so this election plays right into that again. Like here we were, if we could add another four years with Donald Trump, we would finally, um, we, would, we would finally be okay. But who's, who's doing it? Well, it's all these... Um, baby killing pro-life people or it's you know the deep state who's doing this there's there's always someone who is keeping you from this american dream so you're seeing here in, at the end of modernity maybe or in late modernity or for sure here in the 21st century that the american dream that really mobilized a certain uh, a, a certain kind of work ethic and a certain kind of optimism for the world is kind of turning back on american culture now um, especially when, again, those institutions start to decay at the level, not even at the government level, but just decay at the healthcare level, at the upwardly kind of mobile level where, where um, you know, housing options and things like that start to decay. When, when the American infrastructure starts to decay and the dream is still there and yet none of the opportunities for the dream, it also becomes part of the American mythos to start blaming someone else, um, you know because you could get there if you just pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. So there must be someone, there must be a cabal of some people who are keeping this from happening. And Trump says there is, 
fights and that he's going to be your great white knight to fight those. And so you have to have some sensitivity for people that way who have felt left out for decades um, and, and looked down on. And here comes their great hope, which seems so awkward and so weird and so odd for the rest of us, but has some coherence for them. It, it's also like if you look at this December 2nd speech, he all through the speech he uses instead of saying talking about you or sort of directing his voice directly to the audience, he speaks about they and we all the time. So, and it's as if those terms were self-explanatory. There's a they who uh, rigged the election, who's doing the fraud, and and there's a we. So, uh, so, so, so. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, Andy. One thing is the the cultural middle class and those who feel that they've been either economically or culturally left out of the middle class and, and Trump's ability to speak, speak to them and make them feel in some sense included. But there are a few intellectuals or whatever you'd call them who've also spoken in favor of Trump. And I want to ask you about this, at least to, um, to European Lutheran and uh, for you are a Lutheran scholar, Eric Metaxas, who's written a book about Luther and a book like yourself about Bonhoeffer and who's been an ardent Trump supporter. Uh, so what is the background for those? How do you try to explain uh, what seems very odd to us? Uh, people with a more academic or intellectual sort of framing who also support Trump even now, because that's the interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's confusing. It's absolutely confusing. And this is part of what fuels the, the culture war is you just can't imagine people can see it any other way. So, you know, what happens to a democracy when there isn't some kind of shared, shared within some kind of continuum interpretation of what's going on? You know, like what's been happening in America, some people are like, that's orange and other people are saying no that's blue and they just feel completely different and how do you have a democracy when you have groups interpreting it that way so it's it's hard to get inside the head of someone like eric metaxas who has written you know 500 page biographies on these great uh hi historical figures of christianity and, and understand what he's doing but if you do read that bonhoeffer book which i really would recommend you don't it's not very good in any way so maybe that's part of the issue board is it's not very good scholarship but what, what's, what's an interesting kind of keyhole into this conversation is his interpretation of Bonhoeffer is that Bonhoeffer is a great hero. And the correlation is Bonhoeffer is like an American anti-abortion um, fighter. So Bonhoeffer stands up for life against the Nazi genocide, just as Christians in America must stand up against abortion. And, and this becomes just this very crazy situation about how um particularly within the church and even you know put in quote marks the intellectuals within the church who support trump it really comes down to the understanding of abortion and how fundamentally evil abortion is in huh. that trump may even be evil himself but if the most evil thing you can imagine is that there is a cabal of people killing babies and actually taking great joy in killing babies, um, then the fact that this guy maybe have no virtue and maybe a complete bumbling fool, but he will stand up and stack the courts to end this genocide, mm. you're willing to go with it. Um, but that becomes kind of the cultural issue is that people who don't share that 
mm. see things very differently and then wonder what pro-life actually means when, you know, right after he lost the election, now he's, he's going to um, bring capital punishment to over a dozen people. So in, in why, what's the political gain of that? I have no idea, but um, it, it's just a flexing of, of muscle and power, I guess. But so there's, there's just a very, it, things become incoherent, but that that's part of it. So Metaxas jumps aboard Trump because one, I think there is a kind of recovery of a certain kind of masculinity that the left opposes. You know, this is toxic masculinity. And one of the ways to get back at the left is to go to Trump. But then there is this kind of sense of how abortion plays in and that he's he he did come through and promise them um, Supreme Court seats. And he he filled those. He did he did that's him. all that's all that matters which is a very odd thing but what do you think you are well i think the the um the importance um for 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 the speech act uh in such a society uh in in its because the the society is built as um not as a unified culture but but as a amalgam gamation of 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 uh, different cultures and 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 it is not um an attempt to create um a sort of um a national uh ideal like in in the european states because it's it's built on an on um on an idea of radical differences and it means that the century petal forces, namely the, the forces that pull these different cultures together um, in an oral culture such as the, as the, as the American one, then the, the speeches have enormous power and, and, and they can sort of, it's so important what people say. It's, it's just like the, in, 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 in the old, um, in the old days in, 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 in Greece or in, 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 in Rome that um, the power of, of, of spoken word, word. the yeah. spoken word is even, even greater there, I think. And I think Trump knows that instinctively. I mean, yeah. he, he, was, he became famous or a celebrity for The Apprentice for giving lots of executioner speeches saying you're fired. And I mean, he's delivered on that as well. I think, don't think any president before him has fired any, as many uh, as he has fired. And that's, so I think he has a sort of instinct um, knowledge of speech acts uh, or the spoken word as something performative, something that creates yeah. reality. Uh, even with his whole Twitter regime, is yeah. is possible to interpret from that uh, angle. I would. Uh, well, suggest. it's so important. It's so important that um, even over and against the safety of people in a pandemic, he refused not to get up on stage in stadiums filled with people and give his speech acts. That they're so important to his own sense of self as well as to his political ambitions that, um, you know, that he, and, and I think in retrospect, he may have won the election if he would have showed some humility and said for the good of the country, which he's not capable of doing, but for the good of the country, I'm no longer gonna campaign. I'm going to just work on this every day. And this is, I'm going to get us through this. Instead, he couldn't do that. And he just could not imagine a world where he couldn't get on stage and essentially do his stand-up bit, which is ranting on all the people he hates who are, 
either people who owe him because he's made their life great or he hates and are going to destroy the country um, and making fun of them in one of those ways. So, yeah, I mean, he without Twitter and without those kind of very off the cuff speech acts that he gives, um, there wouldn't there wouldn't be um, a Donald Trump presidency. Hey, guys, we've come to uh, sort of come to the end as a last sort of um, point of reflection. I want to ask you. Um, how do you think now, maybe we'll know this when people listen to this and watch this, how the ultimate wingman, Mike Pence, will react? Do you think he will give a sort of concession speech? And now, I mean, now that Mitch McConnell has uh, also sprach Zarathustra, or uh, so say it, the Electoral College, what will Mike Pence do? Because, I mean, he's there for the virtues. He's supposed to secure the virtues, at least in some towards some sort of uh, grouping at least so what sort of speech would we expect mike pence to give before the january 20th you want to go first andy knows him i don't <laughs> i don't know him personally that's for sure no. um our one of our comedians calls him the vice poodle so what will the vice poodle say um You know, that's one of the most hor horrific things that I think that a lot of us still feel stung by is that when this um, lawsuit went from Texas trying to sue other states for voting against Trump, that there were, you know, 120 Republican leaders in, in the House and in, in, in the Senate and in, in states who signed on to this, you know, so and you wonder why. why? But people are the, the, the GOP is so afraid of Trump. So it will be very interesting to see what Pence does. Like does Pence recognize that if he's going to have a political life after Trump, he better get himself away from Trump like Barr actually did yesterday and kind yeah. of resigned. And because all these unethical pardons are going to be coming through here. Um, or so does Pence do that? Or does Pence fear that Trump will turn on him and he'll therefore never have a political life after this? So poor Pence is probably sitting at home drinking milk um, really anxious uh, every minute of the day, wondering if he should jump off the Trump boat as it sinks or if he should go down with the ship. Um, and I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I don't think he will give a concession speech till Trump gives a concession concession speech. And so, and I don't think Trump's ever going to give one. I think Trump's going to give uh, some kind of other speech, which will be a very interesting conversation for you all to have on inauguration day somewhere yeah. else at some other place he's going to give his uh resurrection speech or something <laughs> exactly and, and i think i think pence will probably follow suit in a kind of reasoned boring way like he does but um i think he'll he'll fall in step with trump maybe trump will try to give a consolation speech to all those who feel that this new presidency biden presidency is uh i feel your loss or whatever he, he maybe he'll use that role as a sort of He seems to be very creative and taking on. But you are, you don't know Mike Pence, but what would you have done if you were the ultimate wingman? Not of a po <laughs> podcast show, but of a... <laughs> well, the, the, but, but the problem is, of course, um, is, the, is the game really over? That, that's it. I mean, uh, these people still backing um, Trump, they are not stupid people. And they... They might think, well, um, the captain of, of the ship is perhaps leaving, but the boat is perhaps sailing further. And I think it's uh, the, to, to have a to have a concession speech um, and to to acknowledge that this boat 
doesn't go further or now it stops here it ends it it means that you have to believe that it ends here but i think in addition you have to 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 um, to visualize a political life where conceding to the rules really matter in a positive way and i think that's the you know you, you uh my daughter plays handball and board is a as a handball trainer and if 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 we as a as a as really hardcore you know celebrating uh our team or our daughters and and just attack we, we we go on attacking the the judge that could also be very well received within the team mm -hmm. that, that we don't respect the rules because we we, we believe that our decisions are the right one. So I, I think these two questions are important for, for Mike Pence to, to consider, even if he's drinking. Yeah, no, but I think before the corona pandemic, the, the actual handshake was the concession speech of a handball game. When you shook the hands of the, the judge and uh, more than, I mean, the re result on the board could always be contested. Uh, the parents uh, plotting down the numbers, they were not doing it right or whatever. But once you do the handshake, it's over. So anyhow, um, to make things very clear, in this, in this case, uh, um, I congratulate you on being part of this podcast until now. And I hereby declare this podcast for being ended. Thanks to Andy and to you all for talking about the concession speech and how the words we speak actually creates or makes reality. This was another uh, podcast episode of the four speeches. Uh, goodbye and adieu and farewell.